podcast nine on cannabis and future directions for health systems for children with Tanya Doherty and Rajani Ved. Hello and welcome again to my podcast. And today I'm talking about cannabis. And I've got two great interviews with two people who know everything there is to know about health systems for uh, women and children in low-income settings. That's Rajani Ved from India and Tanya Doherty from South Africa. But I'm going to start with cannabis because I've just read a brilliant review uh, published in uh, psycho, uh, Pharmacology and Therapeutics about the neuropsychopharmacology of cannabis. And for some time, I've had a bit of a prejudice that cannabis, though I believe it should be uh, legalised, should certainly not be commercialised in the way many people are suggesting. It's one of our most widely used recreational drugs in the world. And the prevalence of cannabis use disorders, according to the UN, is estimated at at just under 3% overall. Or if you are a past year user, it's 30%. So the the review paper by Bloomfield and colleagues, and I should declare an interest because a relative of mine is one of the authors. um, The first thing is that the potential long-term deleterious effects of concern are when heavy cannabis occurs, particularly during adolescence, because this is a key developmental period for the brain. Uh, Of course, anyone that has smoked cannabis knows that it induces nice effects like euphoria, relaxation, and it intensifies sensory experiences. But it can also lead to anxiety, paranoia, um, and affect your brain performance, both uh, cognitive and psychomotor. Um, The good news is that two large meta-analyses have shown that the adverse effects of chronic cannabis use, uh, particularly on cognition, improve quite quickly if you stop. So if you stop within a month, Uh, or even less, some say just a few days, you'll feel better. Um, And of course, cannabis also has, uh, as we learn more and more about its effects on the brain, it has anti-epileptic properties, analgesic properties, and possibly as a therapy for chronic pain. So it's complicated. Now, there are endocannabinoid receptors in the brain called CBR, And they're found in high concentration all over the brain, but in particular regions associated with reward and emotion and in cognitive processing. Uh, And the active component, of course, is uh, is THC, tetrahydrocannabinoid. But but there are 143 cannabinoids made by plants. And there is one called cannabidiol, CBD, which is interesting because people are now thinking about this as a potential treatment for psychosis because it doesn't have any of the psychoactive properties of THC and it may act as some modulator of the receptors in ways that could be beneficial. The problem is that the producers are selecting out those plants that produce only the THC And because the acute harms of THC are dose dependent, it means that doses are going up. And we hear talk about skunk, which contains much, much higher levels of THC than in the old student days when my friends and very occasionally me would have a puff of of a spliff. So um, then there is the issues around um, 
whether uh, cannabis sensitivity is found in people who are more likely to be schizophrenic and as a predictor of subsequent psychotic disorders, whether that sensitivity is the case. Uh, it's certainly known that even in cannabis users who do not have frank schizophrenia, uh, drug use is associated with um, increased uh, paranoia. Now, going through what really shocked me about this brilliant review is how much the effects of cannabis are on the brain, both structurally and functionally. There are structural changes found in the hippocampus for memory, atrophy of subcortical structures, hypertrophy, that's overgrowth in the basal ganglia, which controls movement, and a lot of changes in the cortex of the brain, particularly the frontal cortex. And But there are also connectivity problems. All the connections change. Um, uh, and uh, also cannabis use disorder has much lower metabolic rates in the frontal cortex. And we know that uh, there are a range of conditions that you get from cannabis abuse associated with that. And we know that chronic cannabis users have a lot of prefrontal uh, dysfunction. They change their personality and they're less able to execute tasks in an efficient way. But there are all kinds of effects on motor processing, reward, learning and memory, emotions, all kinds of things. And all of the different uh, systems of transmitters, dopamine, glutamine, GABA, are all affected in different ways as we learn more and more. The big issue, of course, is the whether the vulnerability of adolescence produces very long-term changes in brain function. Um, certainly, it's found that adolescent cannabis users do show actually some resilience to the acute effects, so they don't get the memory impairment or the psychotic-like symptoms, but they're vulnerable to other things like uh, processing of inhibition and lack of satiety, so they're more likely to... Uh, be hungry. Um, now, the sc scale of the problem, 183 million past year users and 30% of them may have a problem. So it's no surprise that cannabis now accounts for around half of all first time entrants to specialist drug treatment worldwide. So this is a massive issue, which will only be exacerbated if we make it commercial and easily available. And the there is still some uncertainty the extent to which cannabis smoking in adolescence directly causes schizophrenia, either by exacerbating the same vulnerabilities that cause schizophrenia or through other possible routes. Um, and But there is also the argument that patients with schizophrenia may be motivated to use cannabis because it helps them restore some of their dysregulated brain reward circuits. But anyway, overall, we know that cannabis alters brain structure, interferes with all kinds of brain functions and affects your neurotransmitters. And I think uh, although we must keep studying this uh, for its bad effects, we also know that there is potential for new treatments as we understand the way the brain works in more detail. So that's my thoughts about cannabis. And I think uh, we must legalise it simply to stop the whole uh, uh, malignant effects of criminal behavior with drugs. 
but I don't think we want to make it so widely available that people are exploited. Okay, so next we're going to have a uh, discussion with two brilliant people uh, who have great experience of working in health systems. First up is Rajani Ved, an old friend of mine who has one of the most important jobs in India, uh, helping to coordinate everything that goes on in the National Health Mission. And I spoke to her about the recent review from the BMJ on future directions of child health and I wanted her thoughts about how we build health systems. Rajani, it's really good to talk with you. Um, you hold an incredible position because you're executive director of the National Health Systems Resource Centre in Delhi, in India. So you're helping to manage the biggest primary healthcare programme in the world, covering up to, I think, 1.3 billion people. So that is an amazingly challenging task. Um, in terms of child health services, and particularly thinking about the IMCI or Integrated Management of Newborn and Child Health, I think you call it in India, program, um, can I turn things on, on its head and ask you, what's the secrets of success? Because we can list all the problems, but when you go around India, there must be places, pretty poor districts, which are actually making a good job of things. And I wondered what you felt the features were of successful programs in India. Okay, thanks, Tony. It's good to be talking to you. Um, I think first and foremost, especially when you talk about whether IMNCI or um, has done well, it's been actually in some... So it's, I think I would look at it in two ways. One, in the better performing states where health systems were strong, so child health also benefited from it in terms of whether it was supplies or service deliveries or referral linkages. All of that happened much better in well-resourced states with strong health systems. At the other end of the spectrum, we have poorer states with hardly any resources with areas where a referral hospital or a primary health facility with a medical officer could even be almost as far away as 200 kilometers doing really well because of a strong community health worker program and a strong intersectoral linkages. So in so the secret of success, I think, is either you have a strong community health worker program, which is well supported, well resourced, um, with community health workers having skills to actually manage both the newborn and the sick child, or with states with states or districts with strong health systems. Um, the ones that have fallen in between where they haven't paid much attention to community health workers or treated them merely as link workers to facilitate people to take sick babies to hospitals and not strengthen their institutions either have been the ones where not much success has taken place. So that's my uh, a beginning answer to your question. So that really So is it really about resources? So from an outsider's perspective, one thinks of very progressive states like Kerala and rather backward states like Uttar Pradesh, which of course is massive. Um, yeah. Is it really about resources? I mean, is the resource envelope going into Uttar Pradesh so much less than Kerala? Or is it more about, if you like, organizational culture? I think it's about governance. It's about capacity. Um, and it's also about, you know, whether they're acting on social and environmental determinants as well. I think those three factors count just as much as, as resources do. Having said that, Kerala is better resourced than is Uttar Pradesh. 
Um, and I, so I think it's just not just a question of resources. I think the other um, big success factor, at least in India over the last decade, has been this focus on strengthening health systems and at different levels, improving service delivery organization. I think that's played a very important, a very conscious effort to make sure what services are given at outreach, what services are given at the first year of health facility, at the primary health centers, and the district hospital linkages. And where all of these elements were really well-sustained, planned, I mean, sorry, well-planned, and where capacity of providers was built, where supplies were ensured, all of the, the improvements in both newborn and child health have been really quite dramatic. So this is a recur- recurring theme in in all of the papers on IMCI, that this was a three-pronged strategy focusing on improving health worker skills, but also addressing health systems issues and getting that community engagement. And it was those second two things of health systems and community engagement that many people feel has let let things down. So how has India addressed the issue of district health systems and improving managerial capacity? Um, so there is a very there was in this last decade a very strong thrust on developing district action plans, um, and you know of course the great vision was that every village would come up with a village plan consolidated at the next level, which is a block, and then culminating in a district plan, both in terms of epidemiology and in terms of resource requirements for those particular areas. We never did get village and block plans, but district plans, and based somewhat on the local epidemiology and local needs, local resources did come up and culminate in state plans upon which resources were allocated from the central government. Um, So until recently, the central government gave nearly 70% of the resources for this large national health mission, which focused on district planning as well. So I think that was an important part uh, that contributed to improvements. But, you know, over time, this just became, and I think it also relates to how how much did service providers and program managers in the system internalize this kind of planning? So unless it's pushed by an external agency, maybe in, a, in the earlier years, the NHSRC used to do it. Later on, some state government, some of the development partners did it, but wasn't completely internalized in the system in many states. And there it actually fell through when not much attention. So it tells me that you really have to do this kind of thing for over a decade for it to get completely institutionalized within the system. So that's one learning, the district management teams. Uh, Many states, actually, I think district health management continues to be a challenge. I think because part of it is it's run by management schools who don't bring enough of case learning and case studies from the health sector into district planning. So it's all very much a management-led approach, which is important, but the, the integration with health and health systems is somewhat limited. And there are global examples, but in India, I don't think we've done that good a job of it, particularly in applying it to the poorer states of the north. Yeah, and uh, I mean, India by tradition has always taken charge of its own systems. It hasn't been behoven to to outside donor forces as much as many other countries. And indeed, it doesn't now need to take really any donor funding, particularly for national programs, because it's uh, increasing its wealth. But Anthony, if I may just tell you this, one thing is, in India, health is a state subject. So in many states, we do have external development assistance, especially in states where the governance is somewhat low, then external 
developmental assistance, even if it's really minute and limited to some kind of technical capacity building, overshadows the state's efforts. So in a sense, India, yeah, I know we, the, the appearances that we don't take, we have had very little donor funded programs. Most of it is nationally or state funded, but the technical capacity building is quite critical. It's small, but it's critical for the poorer resource states. And when I say resource, I don't mean financial, I mean technical capacity. So I just wanted to make that caveat. That, yeah, uh, yeah, no, that's a good point. But where where are we with IMCI and the broader maternal child health programs in India? Uh, is IMCI still a major player uh, or majorly discussed or is it disappeared from view and been absorbed into something else? And was it seen as a, a vertical program or as part of a kind of horizontal effort to improve child health? In so, you know, in the 90s, when it was launched, I think India was a very avid recipient of IMCI, IMNCI. They called it IMN because they integrated newborn in it as well, particularly, I think, around between 1995 and 2005, IMCI was an important program. Now, interestingly, because it was, I think it was seen by UNICEF here in India, I think UNICEF was the main player. I'm giving you a little bit of history just, just to put this in context. Um, it went through UNICEF and the nodal ministry for UNICEF is the women and child development, not the Ministry of Health in those days, at least. And so this was implemented through the worker, the frontline worker of the women and child ministry that was looking after supplementary nutrition and early childhood development and not by the health ministry. So and there was some amount of training of the auxiliary nurse midwife. This was before the community health worker came on the scene. And there was some amount of training of the auxiliary nurse midwife, but the focus was entirely on the other frontline worker who in any event didn't have too much interaction with mothers and children outside of the center that she worked in for supplementary nutrition and growth monitoring and early childhood development. In 2005, there was a resurgence. It became part of the national health program. But I think at that point, it was sort of an idea before its time, you know, and because of the work that had gone on before, Somehow IMNCI petered away around 2009-10 with the coming of the ASHA. Um, That's the, the uh, just uh, for people that don't know the acronym, the ASHA is the Accredited Social Health Activist Program. So it's our female community, community health worker. Yeah, of which yeah. there are now, what, a million? A million, almost, yes, yeah. in rural and in urban areas. Um, so, but with the coming of the ASHA program, then she was uh, trained in a set of skills, of course, covering newborn care and child health and her, the module, the module, the content of the module is entirely IMNCI, IMCI. It's just picked up from there and placed there. So without the drugs, of course. So we don't call it IMCI anymore, but all of the components of the training of the frontline workers, whether, whether it's the ASHA or the next level, the auxiliary nurse midwife, are all very much IMNCI, though they don't call it that anymore. So it's become part of integrated child health, if I may say so. So just to finish, I mean, one of the discussions we've had is, as a brand, should we be still pushing IMCI or IMNCI as a kind of global brand? Or is it, if you like, an acronym whose time has run out? and that we should rebrand it in some other way uh, related to child health more generally. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, from the Indian perspective, the Indians will probably stick to their own programs. But do you think it's a global brand that still should have life in it? I think the latter suggestion is probably better. You need to rebrand it as being much more child health. 
And even in the early years, it didn't use it didn't didn't incorporate newborn health, although it may have been implicit. It wasn't explicit, which is why in India they felt the need to make it newborn as well. So I think the suggestion that you probably rebrand it to give and it's something new always, you know, draws more attention, will get people to think about it in a more sustained fashion. So I think that the time for rebranding IMNCI is important. Bringing in, I think, highlighting the element of working through a health systems platform, because now health system strengthening is almost global as well. So moving in that direction would probably give it far more attention than, you know, going on about IMNs, IMCI. That's my sense. That, that's very interesting. Um, I mean, I was always taught by sort of advertising friends that you – you know, you you destroy a brand at your peril because it's something that's well known and all the rest of it. On the other hand, your another person said to me, "Well, it was called Integrated Management of Childhood Illness, and so that's what people focused on—just managing childhood illness and the prevention, promotion, health systems component of it." Therefore, got a bit forgotten. So, in a sense, maybe it's a misnomer anyway, and that we should think about rebranding it. I think so. Also, and you know, the three parts that you currently have, which is frontline worker training, health system strengthening, which is so broad. And so you have two very specific things, family and community, and you have frontline workers, which are two specific arms. And then in, in between, you have this whole big health system strengthening, which can be a big black box. So I think breaking that up a little, but focusing much more now on social environment and equity. I don't know that there was so much equity discussion in IMCI. I think that needs to come up front because increasingly that's the challenge we're facing. Absolutely. Oh, just one other final question, which is slightly unrelated, but um, increasingly people are aware that children are in the front line of environmental issues and that uh, I think WHO worked out that about a third of childhood deaths were related to environmental problems India, it seems to be in the front line of facing, you know, massive air pollution problems in cities, water and sanitation, but now climate change and heat stress and big, big water shortage problems. How do you view that right now? Are you very pessimistic or do you think that uh, the Indian government uh, can take uh, action that's necessary to really address some of these issues urgently? They need to to address some of these issues urgently. I think water and sanitation, they're trying, at least the sanitation bit, they are trying to do a lot of work. Certainly, it's very high profile. But, you know, I think sort of the health is being seen as only a health ministry issue, which is a big tragedy. I think it has to be at the highest levels of government that they have to recognize. And I think they, they recognize that air pollution is bad for everybody, but that children are especially affected is not yet so... Um, apparent and I think we need to do a great I don't know how it is globally but in India the fact of air pollution and water and sanitation specifically affecting children it needs a lot more advocacy it's just not there that is interesting I I was on a panel actually on a Indian TV show about nine months ago and we were giving all the facts and figures but the person that really grabbed the attention was a pediatric lung specialist from Delhi who said, I've been looking down into children's lungs for the past 25 years, and until 10 years ago, they were all pink, and now they're black. Yep. 
And that was really powerful because it brought home to, you know, the audience. But you're right. I think advocacy is very important. Just on the water shortage issue, there have been quite a few reports in the British press about uh, or the international press about water shortages and reaching critical limits and some cities running out of water and stuff. Is this media hype or is this a real problem? It is a real problem. In Delhi, certainly, they say the water table has sunk so low that by 2030, we're going to have an increasingly difficult time. That's in Delhi alone. And there are many, many cities in which this is happening. And that's another tough one. And children will suffer. But somehow child health, in that sense, I mean, immunization is a big deal in India now. But Tony, don't quote this one on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, or... (laughs) No, I, well, th- maybe that's something else we should talk about another time, Rajani. It's always a pleasure to chat to you, and 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 thanks very much for this. And I, you know, India, uh, India has always got the, the the most interesting innovations, but also the biggest problems. I I don't envy your position, but I think you've got one of the most important health positions in the world. So thank yeah. you very much. So much. Nice talking to you. All right. Bye. Okay, next I had a chat with Tanya Doherty, who is a specialist and extraordinary professor at the South African Medical Research Council. Tanya spent her career working on uh, child health, maternal and child health systems, particular interest in nursing. Uh, and she's an absolute joy to work with because when I was at WHO, we used to work with her a lot and she was always the first person to put her hand up to do any work. But she um, was very interesting to talk about some of the challenges that they face in South Africa. So, Tanya, your team in the Strategic Review of Child Health looked very much at the role of district health management teams in child health strategies. And I guess that touches on the health systems component of IMCI, which got severely criticised. Did you find a number of problems here? Yes, so particularly from the country case studies, and there were nine country case studies included in this um, strategic review, and a really common theme that came out um, from these visits to the countries was that A real focus of IMCI had been on the clinical training and um, preparing health workers to deliver the strategy. And in fact, the the very people who have to manage this at a district level were not included and and there was not a focus on preparing them to manage these services. And so um, the lack of management capacity became really came out as a core theme across the countries that participated in this review. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems seems to have been that uh, outsiders, if you like, donors have been part of the problem. Would you would you agree with that, with imposition of lots of different strategies that meet, mean that for districts, they get a bit confused and overwhelmed by all these different initiatives? Yes, yeah, so... After IMCI was introduced, um, there's been a period of... Um, new global initiatives that have emerged and and essentially have competed at the at the district level for the time and the attention of of district managers and um you know some of these global initiatives if you think of um the HIV um 
services have have really been scaled up in in very rapidly with ambitious targets and very dedicated focused funding streams and often parallel systems being set up and um so so you have you know separate uh, focus areas on hiv but also within child health there's been a focus um on newborn care at one stage and um, on community-based integrated management of childhood illness. And so these various initiatives have come in along the way um, and uh, have to be delivered at, you know, at a district level by the, the very same management team that's trying to, to implement all these services. And that has really been, been a struggle for, for these uh, managers. The other thing your paper says that uh, clinical training tends to always be prioritised over management training. So we we train up the workers in skills and diagnostics and stuff, but we don't train the management teams in how to properly manage programmes. Is is that a fair criticism? Absolutely, and I think that also is partly related to the huge reliance on um, partners and donors. So. This survey, the implementation survey um, of uh, over 90 countries as part of this global review, uh, found that in, in only a third of countries was the government funding training. So the vast majority of training costs are being met and continue to be met by, by donors and implementing partners who need you know, quick results um, that they can deliver back um, to their constituents. And, and so numbers of health workers trained in, in the basic training is, is an important indicator for them. Whereas management training is, is more of a long-term process. It's not a once-off, quick-win solution. And it requires commitment to ongoing mentorship. So there, there has been a lack of ownership at, at district level, uh, but we know that certain programs that have been well funded and where management support has been done well, for example, I mean, the best example, of course, being immunization. But even in certain countries in nutrition or, or others. Um, mm. So it can work if the investment is there. And clearly, many countries simply don't have the resources to put that in. But turning it around, are there examples of countries that have done this? really well. I, I was struck by your example of Egypt in the, in the paper. Right. So Egypt um, really followed a different process to other countries in that they, they scaled up possibly slightly slower. They took more attention um, to very detailed planning processes. They started off with a thorough situational assessment at district level to understand what the current capacity was, where the gaps were, um, what the management skills were, and they used that local data to inform their planning processes and went through a stage of a thorough orientation of their district teams around the IMCI strategy and then looking at um, progressive scaling up but taking into account the readiness within districts and building on that. And so it, it took them a, a period of eight years to reach um, their 85% coverage across the country. But this was um, very high quality coverage um, because of this very focused planning process. And as a result, um, research has shown that 
um, Egypt managed to double their rate of reduction of under five mortality uh, following um, the period of, of scale up of IMCI. Which really endorses the views expressed, I remember, by Cesar Victoria about 15 years ago when he did a review of IMCI saying, look, where it's implemented well, it can have a big impact. Absolutely. And and that that implementation has got to go beyond simply training health workers to deliver the clinical care. It has to be a, a comprehensive approach with a focus on strengthening um, priority, uh, prioritization, planning and monitoring of, of the program over time. Absolutely. And and it's not all bad news. I mean, I you refer in the paper to initiatives in Nepal that's got district IMCI coordinators in Kazakhstan, in Tanzania and Peru who are devolving budgeting and spending, things like that. So I, I don't think we should feel completely negative about this. Uh, and given the new financing initiatives, for example, from the Global Finance Facility, does that mean that you think actually, although we've, you know, made many mistakes over the past 20 years, this is not irreparable, that we can actually move forward quite positively? Yes, I, I do think that there is an opportunity now um, as we're working towards the SDG goals, which really do require much uh, more focused um, multi-sectoral planning and implementation. It necessitates that. Um, and, and certain countries have taken that on board. So you gave the example of Nepal where they really have looked at how to strengthen teams at a district level. And so they've created these um, health facility management committees. And there are examples of across many countries of, of a form of, of clinic committee, hospital committees, where you're really combining the health workers and community stakeholders and um, using local information, understanding challenges, bottlenecks and coming up with local solutions and and then holding the management team accountable to implement those, you know, those um, identified solutions. And I think that as as we understand the need for integrated planning and we, we, we're moving beyond, you know, we've, we've, we've gone beyond the MDG era of really lots of vertical initiatives being thrust onto districts. And now we realize that we've got to work across programs and plan in an integrated manner to, to achieve um, um, the health outcomes that, that we're trying to strive towards, which are very ambitious. And so, Strengthening teams and holding teams accountable is really um, a key um, area going forward. Right. Uh, well, just to finish, the, the World Bank has been suggesting that uh, results-based financing or performance-based financing is an important initiative. Do you see this as another vertical program or do you think this does have a role to play? Is there evidence for this yet? Well, there were examples from two of the countries included in this review um, that um, have incorporated um, child health and IMCI indicators as part of their performance-based financing. Um, one was Peru, and here 
there is an opportunity. It, it's um, you know holding. There is a, there are accountability mechanisms. There are preset and defined targets and indicators. There has been research on performance-based financing. Obviously, it is donor-dependent. The World Bank is is financing it in in many of these countries, and um, there are some concerns that there could be unintended effects whereby health workers focus only on those indicators that there is um, there there are targets um, set, and other aspects may get neglected. Um, there, there's also some worry as to whether it can really lead to long-term improvements in health system performance, um, because these are, you know, sh- short-term goals that are quarterly or um, biannual targets. And so, I think more research is needed as this is, is scaled up at national level um, to see whether there are, you know, long-term benefits to improving quality of care. Yeah, and and as a final comment is that uh, which you've a point you've already made is that with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, the need for integration is even more important, not just across the health sectors, different vertical initiatives, but with other sectors as well. So this is a challenge to us all, and I think it's a big challenge to the United Nations agencies and and bilateral donors to really come together. Uh, and help countries in this integrated way. Absolutely. And I think one thing that, that really came out from this review is that we're not documenting the learning processes, um, particularly at subnational level, um, as districts are you know, attempting to implement various solutions and strategies. And there is a role to play for understanding these processes, for using implementation research um, through partnerships with, um, with you know, government um, staff and managers and, and understanding how things play out and what can be uh, taken up and, and scaled up and, and, and how things really work. And I think districts can help each other as well in, in these learning processes and, and learning from each other what, what works at a local level. Absolutely. That's a good point to finish on, that peer learning is actually an incredibly important part of this process and getting districts together from uh, good, and, good and weaker districts together across countries is always a very powerful way of learning. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, Tanya. That's great. My pleasure. Okay, thanks very much for listening. And uh, we've got coming up in future podcasts, I've got uh, discussions with Audrey Pross, Prasanta, Tripathi and Nima Nair on the community component of child health systems. I've got podcasts with uh, David Nabarro talking about his food dialogues, which is very interesting. He recently won with Lawrence Haddad the World Food Prize. Uh, and Camilla Stoltenberg from the Norwegian Institute of Public Health. And uh, just to remind you that my book is out, The Social Edge, The Power of Sympathy Groups for Our Health, Wealth and Sustainable Future. And you can buy that at www.thornwickpress.com or available for order in any uh, bookshop in the UK or indeed in the United States of America now because it's available from Ingram. Uh, so I hope you, uh, some of you find the time not only to buy it and read it, but write a review on Amazon, which would be great. 
Okay, thanks very much and have a fantastic uh, weekend. Speak soon. Thank you.